Welcome to the Storytellers Lab podcast, where everyday people share real and personal stories of encounters with God. I'm Robin, and I am here with Katie and Lindy. And today we bring you Valerie's story. And Valerie is the first storyteller from our brand new city. Yay, we have a brand Tupelo. new, yes, Tupelo, Mississippi is a brand new Storytellers Lab city. And Valerie kicked them off with a bang. They actually, yes, they met in December for a very small group Mm -hmm. and recorded this story. And Valerie was very gracious Mm -hmm. to allow us to share this publicly. Mm -hmm. I tell you what, I was just so thankful to be able to actually see Valerie tell her story because we had the privilege of watching her on a video as she told this story. And her deliverance of her story was just so precious and that you could just see her come alive with just passion for Jesus and all that she's been through. And telling you, you're going to be blown away by the power of God listening to her story. Yes, this is not a typical storyteller's live story that we've ever shared Mm -hmm. before, and we are thrilled to bring it to you. Mm -hmm. And we just pray that as you listen, God speaks to you about what He can do in Valerie's life, He can do in your life. Mm -hmm. And here's her story. Before we start today's story, we do want to let you know that Valerie talks about sexual and physical abuse. And if this is a trigger for you or something you have experienced, then you may want to wait and listen to next week's story. And also, if you have little children around while you're listening, this is also probably not the best story for them to hear until you have heard it first. And then you can make that decision yourself. So here is Valerie's story. Uh, all of my life, um, the beginning of my life, my parents took me to church. Our whole family going to church. My grandmother taught us you, you should be in church. She was a Methodist elder, taught my mother and all of my aunties, this is what we do. This is who we are. I remember being about five years old in vacation Bible school, and my, my Aunt Catherine was the teacher, and she taught us the song, Onward, Christian Soldier. I didn't remember that song until years later when I was in prison in a Bible study. We grew up in a town in Alabama, a little bitty town where people thought that because it was so small, everybody knew everybody, it was a safe place, but it wasn't a safe place because people were not watching their children and they really did think that we were in a good neighborhood, we were in a good place, that there would be no molesters, there would be nobody preying on little children, but there were. You know, and they found me. You know, I was the youngest of my family and the youngest of my um, cousins, even. Not just my siblings, but of my cousins. I was the youngest and of that generation. And so by the time they got around to me, you know, they didn't want a little kid running around with them. So I would always be with my mother or my aunties, you know, just waiting for them to, you know, do whatever they were doing. They were close-knit. I remember one day that... They were sitting around, my mother and three of my aunts, and they were just talking like they do. And a man came in to ask if he could get a ride to the store. And he was a man in the neighborhood. Every, As I said, everybody knew everybody. And they said, well, hey, what do you want to get a ride to the store for? He said, I want to buy a knife. And they said, what do you want to buy a knife for? He said, I want to cut somebody. And they tried to talk him out of it. And... He got mad because they were trying to talk him out of it. Nobody knew how bad his schizophrenia was. And so he began to fight with my mama and my aunt. And he was just going from one to the other. And I could hear the thumps of his fists on them as he was beating my mama, my aunties. In that room, I ran to get under the bed. And every time after that, whenever we would see him in the neighborhood, I would run and hide. 
And I believe that is the first time that fear actually entered me. As a little girl and seeing the people sitting around me who had always protected me so helpless against this attacker. And so most of my life, I just walked around scared, scared of everything. So when somebody would touch me wrong or or somebody would say wrong things to me and wanted to fight me, I was scared. I couldn't tell anybody. I was scared. I was scared years and years and years. And when I was 12 years old, there was an an attacker from my family and nobody believed me. (laughs) It was very painful, not just physically, but because nobody believed me, you know, and it was now all my fault. You know, he was a very close member of our family. And um, at that moment, I was looking at every man as an attacker, every man as somebody who would do harm to to me every single time. You know, and whatever whenever I come in contact with a man, it would always it was always going to be my fault, whatever they said. And I didn't want to be a girl anymore. And I want I wanted to be this powerful figure that everybody would listen to, that everybody would believe. And I thought that being a lesbian was the way to go. I had my first girlfriend. I think I might have been 15. I'm just running around doing nothing. But I'd hide it from my family because I grew up in church. And we don't do that. <laughs> okay. So, you know, I got a high school sweetheart, a guy, you know, we went to the prom and all that kind of stuff. And I I married him and we fought all the time. We fought, fought, fought because he knew. And because he said, I love you, but I know, you know, and I know you're thinking about some girl, you know, some woman I know. And we fought all the time, left him one night with a woman and we moved to Memphis, Tennessee. And I found out that she was not who she declared herself to be. And I found myself living on the streets of Memphis, selling blood to eat, selling blood for beer or marijuana. You know, that's what we did. Selling myself just on the streets with nowhere to go. Got really, really down at one point and wanted to go home. And my parents weren't ready for me to come home. You know, the rumors were all in the neighborhood. Your kid's doing this. And your kids strung out on drugs and all that, you know, and they weren't ready for that. My dad was a deacon in the church. and My mom taught Sunday school and she was a secretary of the church. And they were just you know, not these people <laughs> with a daughter running around doing any and everything on the streets of Memphis one night. I walked away from my lover and some guys found me and dragged me into their car and they did everything that they wanted to do with me, stripped me naked. And when they were done, they threw me out of the car naked. And I heard a voice that said, look up, because I was in the bushes. When they threw me out of the car, I just crawled over into the bushes. I didn't know what I was going to do next. I was naked. (laughs) I'd been beaten, you know, and robbed, had a little money in my pocket. I'd been beaten and robbed. I felt like... You know, that guy who the Samaritan met, <laughs> he was robbed and beat and left half dead. I felt like that. But I heard that voice that said, look up. And I looked up and my clothes were over in a little pile. <laughs> and I got my clothes up. And You would think at this time I would go straight home, you know, to 
what should have been a safe place for me, but I didn't. I stayed a little while longer. Later, I went home. I did go home. Back to my husband. We moved to Pontiac, Michigan, and we fought the whole time. We fought the whole time. I moved back home, and we were separated. And um, we got divorced, and I met another guy and married him. And we stayed together five years. And it seemed like I would have five years of doing good and then fall off again. And five years of doing good, and then I fall off again. I could stay sober even for five years at a time. And I was back in trouble again, back at rock bottom again. I, um, my husband went to prison and I had four children to take care of at that time. It's a single parent. I had dropped out of college. So there wasn't a whole lot of employment opportunities for me. But it was my fault that I didn't stay home, you know, stay in school, do what needed to be done, stay in a safe place. I did what I thought I knew how to do uh, from the streets where I learned it. I started selling dope and back in the same situation that I got into. It's like the more uh, drugs you sell, the more you get drawn into that lifestyle of, you know, street life and clubs and cliques. I went to prison for three years and three months. And I got out and went to Jackson, Mississippi, to a halfway house. It was a six-month program. I stayed six months, and then I stayed another three months. And they said it was okay. You don't have to pay rent anymore. We just want you to be here. Um, Help us out with the other girls. Before I got out of prison, I decided that I was going to change my life. I wasn't going to live this gay lifestyle anymore. And so I wanted everybody in prison to do the same thing. So... (laughs) So there's one, there's one, this one girl, and she's getting beat up by a girlfriend. That's what they do in prison. You, you beat up your girlfriend, you take all the food and all that kind of stuff. <laughs> that's what you do. Well, that's just, that's what you do. And um, one day she was getting beat up and she was crying, you know, and she was saying, well, will you pray for me? I'm saying, no, I won't pray for you. I want you to know that she doesn't love you. Jesus loves you. Jesus loves you. And I walked off and I didn't think about it anymore. Okay. Now, here I am. I get straight. I'm clean for nine months. I go to live with my sister in Alabama um, and then move back to Mississippi and get in that same routine again. Now I'm selling drugs because, you know, a guy I went to school with, he was the kingpin, you know, and we're it's easy to get the hookup. And so I'm selling drugs again, making a lot of money, making a lot of money and just pull back into that club scene, back into those old cliques. And I get another drug charge. Uh, this time, I got a drug charge for 14 years. When I got to prison, I was there about a year, and they told me I had another charge that added 15 years to the 14 years. And so now I got 29 years to serve in prison. 29 years. But they gave me 29 years, 22 to serve. I was there. When I got went to the prison, I was I still had... The smoke of this world on me, you know, the smell of smoke on me. And I was, everybody knew, you You look like a hustler, let me give you some cigarettes, because that's what you do in prison when you you sell cigarettes. That's the hustle. So I began to sell cigarettes. And one day I just got so tired, so tired, so tired. And I don't know where this weary, I didn't know at the time where this weariness came from. But it was the Lord letting me know how heavy, heavy, heavy the sin is. 
that I got myself entangled with. One day I decided, look, I just, okay, Lord, I'm done. I can't do this anymore. You just have your way in my life. It wasn't immediate. During the time I was selling cigarettes, I was still, still had a couple of girlfriends in prison. Going to the chapel services to meet other women, that's what you do in prison. So I'm sitting there in the chapel service one day going to meet another woman. And we're sitting there and she's trying to hold my hand at chapel service and I'm just sitting there. And the same woman that I met in prison the first time got up before the whole church service and said, there's a woman here who was instrumental in me giving my life to the Lord and surrendering completely to the Lord. And I'm sitting there when I, Lord, I know this girl, but I I hope she ain't talking about me. (laughs) And so... And then she called my name and then they called me up to the front of the church service. And she was saying, this woman right here is the reason I left my lesbian lifestyle alone and I surrendered my life to Christ and everybody clapping and everything. And so I go back to sit in my seat. The girl's still sitting next to me and she's trying to hold my hand again. And I'm like, I can't keep doing this. I said, okay, Lord. Okay. Listen, the Lord will show you who you are. In the deepest valley, wherever you find yourself, the Lord will show you who you are. Our lives are hid with Christ in God, with him in God. And that was just the Lord showing me who I was, even in my messed up state. I said, okay, Lord, whatever you want to do, whatever you want to do. I've been like all of the other people in my culture. We get baptized when we're 12 years old, you know, and we come and we get in the junior choir and we get on the junior usher board. That's what we do. You know, I'd been there and then turned to the world, you know, and found out that the world is just, has nothing to offer, has nothing to offer. It's incredible to me that the Lord would choose somebody like me. I began to read my Bible. And the Lord began to talk to me. And whenever he talked to me, I'd write it down. I wasn't journaling for real. I was actually right. And I would copy it again, just with, with my own hand, copy it, copy it. And I'd give it to the ladies in there. They moved me to another prison, Greenville, Mississippi. I still had my time to serve. <laughs> moved me to another prison, Greenville, Mississippi. We started. They, were, they had a Bible study that they invited me to. And after about three nights of their Bible study, they said, well, yeah, you, you'd probably need to teach this Bible study. And so I began to teach the Bible study in 2016 in prison, well, 2012 in prison until I left in 2016, twice a week. I tried to do it once a week. They weren't having it <laughs> um, twice a week for those four years. And we had a prayer uh, circle at nine o'clock every night, every single night. We began to pray for all kinds of stuff. We began to believe God, say, if you believe it, hey, and you have somebody agree with you, you can get what you ask for. We started believing that. We began to believe that if you say to this mountain, get out of here, it will. We began to believe that. So we asked for the laws to be changed. We knew that, man, this is huge. But we had this little bit going for us. One of our girls in the Bible study, in the Bible study and in the prayer group, her son had an accident, a car accident. He was 17 years old at the time. And they called her up front to the warden's office and he had cracked his shoulder. And whatever happened, the bone was 
sticking into his heart. And she said, she came back to the pond. She said, y'all pray. And so we began to pray for her. And when she went back up, talked to her family on the phone and came back, she said, the doctor said, he don't know what, ha- he doesn't know what happened. He said, this got those x-rays side by side and the bone is not there anymore. And that gave us a little courage to start praying. <laughs> Listen, we started praying that people, people's families would answer the phone when they called and it was happening. We, we prayed that people's children, adult children would answer the phone when they called and it started happening. So we got brave enough to say, Lord, change the, change the laws. Because at the time, Mississippi was under 85% law, whatever a crime you commit, you have to spend 85%. We weren't having it because now we know the Lord will answer us. <laughs> okay. <laughs> and one day I went to the um, caseworker's office. Still, I'm still writing down whatever the Lord tell me and pass it out. I didn't know if anybody was listening or not for real or even reading what I was writing, but I was still doing it. I went to the case manager's office and I was real tell me with her. I said, hey, Miss Forrest, you got a parole date for me? Because at the time I didn't, my charge didn't carry a parole date. I was just there. I was going to have to be there to 85%. She said, I don't know. Let me look. <laughs> she went on her computer and she said, uh, yeah, but let me check something else. I said, Miss Forrest, don't play like that. <laughs> don't, don't even play with me. You know, I got a long time in prison. <laughs> she said, oh, it's here. <laughs> and in a month's time, they had released me from prison. The judge gave me 29 years, 22 to serve, and I got an eight years because of that parole date. And we believe the laws changed because we prayed. We really believed that families were getting back together because we were praying. Y'all see, now I believe in the power of prayer now, y'all, you know, because <laughs> God answers, because God answers. Well, let me tell you what happened because I was writing and just letting everybody read it. When I got out of prison, I was, uh, I moved in with my daughter who had absolutely, she didn't have to have me even in her life anymore. I'd been gone three and a half, three years, three months. And now this time for eight years. And when my case manager talked to her, she said, doesn't, doesn't she want to come live with me? And that touched my heart so much. I don't care what I got to do now. I'm going home to my baby. You know, I moved in with my daughter and she was taking me to her house. And we passed a church that said new seasons. I said, do you see that church? It said new seasons, new seasons. We're all about numbers and all that thing and all that stuff. It was August the 1st, August is the eighth month, you know, new beginnings. She said, yeah, that's my church. <laughs> that's what I go to. And I went to the church, uh, you know, and, uh, but I had to work on Sundays sometimes. So I wouldn't be there, but I would go, you know, send in my ties, you know, that kind of thing. But I wasn't doing anything. And by now uh, I had been teaching and, and in prayer groups and I'm used to doing something for the Lord. And I'm used to this, you know. A few months later, uh, the pastor of the church died. I'm like, Lord, you, you got this happened miraculously to me. The church is new seasons, my new season. The pastor died. I'm like, I don't know what you're doing, Lord. And um, the chaplain called me one day and said, What are you doing? I said, Nothing. I said, I'm not teaching. I don't have a prayer group or any of that. Uh, the chaplain of the prison had used me for everything she wanted to do whatever extra she had needed done. She called me so that I can help. She knew Kelly. <laughs> so because I didn't have anything to do, she called and she asked Kelly, 
Kelly asked her, can she write? And she said, yes, yeah, she can write. And I didn't even know she was she was reading those things that I sent to her. I got Kelly and I got together and we had a radio broadcast one day. We were on American Family Radio and um, we were telling our stories on American Family Radio. And Kelly asked me again because I told her earlier, I wish I had gone to a halfway house. You know, um, I got a job and I'm paying my bills but I don't have any extra, and I just can't move out of my daughter's house. I can't seem to get on top of things. She said, oh, you still want to go and do that kind of, go to a halfway house? I said, yeah, I'm ready. She called um, the director of the program, and the direct- director said, well, she's been out of prison two years. She's sober. She's doing her own thing, got her own job. But we've been praying for, for somebody to come into the home in a leadership position. <laughs> That's how I got to the transformation home where I am today. That's where I work. It is a faith-based rehab for a women in addiction. And um, I'm still writing in the Stone Stories Ministries and cannot believe that the Lord would choose me to be in the transformation home. I was there about two months. And the house mom there decided she was leaving and they wanted me to step into that position. And we call it the resident director, but I'm the house mom. And I can't believe that God would choose me. He delivered me from homosexuality. But then you let me really, really allow me to come in and live with these women. You know, it's because I'm delivered for real. (laughs) And God did that. (laughs) And before you today, 10 years clean, sober and celibate only by the power of God. It is the kind of thing you pray for. You got to really believe it'll happen and get somebody to pray in agreement with you. If it's your child, if your brother, your spouse, whoever it is. God can turn it around because he turned it around for me. (laughs) He turned it around for me. I'm in a great relationship with my children. (laughs) Great relationship with my sisters who I embarrassed. (laughs) (laughs) And my children, I embarrassed them too, you know, (laughs) running around in the streets, you know, selling dope, doing dope because, you know, you do dope when you sell dope. But the Lord did this. Changed my heart and my mind. Yes, because the enemy tried to bring that fear back to me with the breast cancer. And I was standing in Popeye's where I worked one day. I'd been watching, I like action movies. Okay, so I watched this movie called The Equalizer. And at the end, what Denzel watched it. <laughs> so, so, at, so at the end of the movie, he says, I come for the head of the snake. Because he'd kill all the bad guys and he'd go on for them. And I was standing in the middle of Popeye's and I could hear that so clear. I come for the head of the snake. Because the enemy says, whenever you go under the knife, whenever you get that anesthesia and you're not coming back, it is the end of your life and you are going to die on that table. But God said, I'm here for the head of the snake. And that snake is fear. And when I laid on that table, surrounded by my sisters, And my sister from another mother. <laughs> the my surgeon came in and he said, "Can I pray for you?" <laughs> yes, sir, you can. And my surgeon prayed, and I woke up with my sisters surrounded. Not a person who's living in fear anymore. Not a person who lives in fear anymore. Because now I know if I die today, I'm going to be with the Lord. <laughs> I'm going to be with the Lord. (laughs) Win-win. You know, 
And I just thank God for this opportunity to be with you, to talk to you, to tell you my story. And I don't tell my story for any kind of sensationalism, okay? I tell it so that somebody can be encouraged that God can do it again in the who we think is the best of us and who we think is the least of us. God can do it again. And he will transform your life. (laughs) He will transform your life. Valerie ends her story saying that if God did this for her, he can do it again. Mm -hmm. And I think so often we doubt what God's capable of. Mm -hmm. I know I do Mm -hmm. regularly when we go through struggles. And that's one of the amazing things of hearing people's stories Mm -hmm. is that it gives you the confidence Mm -hmm. in him to go, if he did this once, he will do it again. Mm -hmm. And the power, this power of story. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. For this Enneagram 7, Valerie's story (laughs) made me very uncomfortable. And and I was able to watch it, as Katie mentioned Uh earlier, and she is so precious. Mm -hmm. And watching her tell her story by the end, she was glowing with the Holy Spirit of how she truly had been freed Mm -hmm. and delivered. And she said in the middle of her story, this was my favorite quote, in the deepest valley, God will show you who you are. And not only who you are, but whose you are. And God showed Valerie. He kept coming back to her. I mean, again and again, Mm -hmm. she said, I was so tired of my heavy sin. Mm -hmm. And he kept just showing her, I am right here. I can restore. I can redeem. Mm -hmm. And she is literally glowing today. She is. You know, a couple of things from her story that that I got out of it was just the power of prayer, first of all. Mm -hmm. She challenged me in my prayer life, for Mm -hmm. sure, of just, you know, Believe it, you know, believe his word. <laughs> but then also, I always love it when God layers things on me. And and after listening to her story, I was reading, you know, my daily devotional. And I want to read it to you guys just to share it with you because it just went right along with what Valerie was saying. But it was talking about how the tax collectors and the prostitutes are going to be first in the kingdom of mm-hmm. heaven. And in the devotion, it says, have you ever noticed how often seemingly upright people seem so uninterested in Jesus? They simply do not see any need. On the other hand, I've often been astonished by the openness and spiritual hunger of those in prison and ex-offenders. It is through going into the prisons that I've realized why Jesus loved to spend his time with the marginalized. They are the ones who are often most responsive to Jesus. No one is beyond hope. Even if the past has been full of wrongdoing, nothing you have thought or said or done puts you beyond the reach of entering the kingdom of God. Mm, And I thought, gosh, that's Valerie's story. Like you said, Robin, how she said, I tell my story so God can do it again. Like Mm. she's just so on fire for him. I want him to do it again. And I want him to do it in your life. And it just was so empowering and encouraging Encouraging. in my faith. Yes. Yes. I keep going back to her, them praying in the prisons for the laws to change. Like that's mind blowing. That's (laughs) that's like biblical stuff. Absolutely. That I think we forget God Mm -hmm. does that today, you know, and he does. He does it over and over. Mm -hmm. Valerie is so precious and she was so honored that we would even share Mm -hmm. this story. And we thought we're We're honored honored. that you would be willing to allow us to share Mm -hmm. all that God has done in your life. And so we just thank Valerie again. And we welcome Tupelo to our storytellers family (laughs) and their gathering and We thank you for listening today. If you want to know more about our stories, if you want to get information each week on the podcast, you can sign up for our emails at storytellerslive.org. We have a 
email sign up, super easy. We just tell you about each storyteller each week. And I think you would love to see Valerie's sweet little face on there. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And thanks for listening. And we will talk to you next week. Bye.